0: Hello listeners, if you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, please consider supporting our effort. To contribute, go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not
1: because they are easy, but because they are hard.
2: Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. In my feet out. Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby lights, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff, we have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man.
0: For Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis and you're listening to episode number 363 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 16, Moonwalk 1, Part 3. Three and a half hours into the first EVA... After completing the ALSEP setup, the next activity was the geological survey. The plan was to sample around the ALSEP area, get a few rocks and soil, and then drive the rover about a mile west to Plum Crater for a more extensive geological survey. Collecting samples was more difficult than John and Charlie had thought, plus Dust was getting on everything. Them, the cameras, the bags, and the tools.
2: Early, what do you do with the dirt? You just threw it all over yourself. I you mean to The rock's fell out. You gotta clean off your limbs and my limbs before we can start here. No, I cleaned it off already. Okay, okay Tony, it's a white matrix in this rock uh, with some class. It's a one-rock breccia. One of the players just fell out. But it really looks like a Kalichi Matrix. Uh, Sort of friable. Okay, this white rock uh, that I picked up is in bag 373. Okay, 373. Really works when you spin them up, Tony. Great. Okay, John. Uh... (laughs) I gotta change the mag on my camera. Can you uh, give it to me? Nobody? you gonna do? Clean me off? Or clean off the other I'm gonna clean off the, off the camera. <laughs> Wait a second. Let me set this down, down. right here. Okay, uh, I want to clean the camera off too. That dust out of there with we'll there, get the mag. Okay. it's nice How about cleaning yours off, too? Yours, if I got really. Just get the mag off on it? Uh, no, just dust it off. Can you get my gloves a minute, John? Can I get your gloves? Just clean them a minute. There you go. Just to get that loose stuff off, right?
0: As you heard, the dust was a major problem. The astronauts were constantly having to stop and use their dust brush. Now it was time to ride the rover and head out to Plum Crater. Charlie was really excited to finally ride the rover. John had already tried it. Due to the bulkiness of their suits, They decided that the best way to mount the rover was to grab hold of the rover next to the instrument panel, bounce a few times, then jump up and pull themselves in, hoping to land on the seat. It did work. Charlie landed right in the seat, but it felt like he was suspended in the air. The stiff suit had made him extend straight out and it took some effort to bend it and wedge himself in enough to buckle the seatbelt. But the seatbelts were a necessity because the rough ride would have bounced them right out of the rover. The traverses the Apollo 16 astronauts made reflected the geologist's primary interest in exploring North Ray and South Ray craters and their ejecta blankets. In fact, it was the location of those two prominent craters relative to one another that had dictated 16's exact landing point. Their first traverse trekked westward, away from the limb and directly away from the sun out to Plum Crater. Interestingly, using the commander's prerogative, John Young named Plum Crater for his daughter Sandy, whom he called Sugar Plum. Charlie felt like Christopher Columbus as they started out. John was the driver, and Charlie was the navigator, picture taker, and travel guide. It was his job to describe and photograph the terrain while directing John from point A to point B. John had his hands full trying to keep the rover out of the craters and away from boulders. Charlie was the typical tour guide, except his tourists were 240,000 miles away in mission control. At our uh, 11 o'clock position,
2: uh, we're at uh, zero 08 for point 4. We have two very bright small craters that are two or three meters across, and uh, we see some whitish material down below uh, in the uh, walls of the crater there. They're about 25 meters off. Okay, we're going uh, generally west now, and at our uh, 1 o'clock position on a heading of 270, at a bearing of, we're 091 and 0.5. We're in another, another distinct ray field, uh, ray, uh, ray, let's say, boulder field. We sort of passed out of one, and we're in another one.
0: About seven miles in the distance, Charlie could see South Ray, a spectacular crater about 1,500 feet across, flanked by enormous boulders that were probably 90 feet in diameter. These large boulders had been thrown out of the crater by the force of a meteorite impact. The meteorite had also ejected a great amount of smaller rocks which formed white and black rays extending for miles in all directions, emanating like sun rays. These rays contained more rocks than the general terrain and... Their drive to Plum Crater took them right across some of them. The terrain was hilly, with a lot of one meter sized blocks as well. But they couldn't see any of this very well. With the sun so low in the sky behind them, they could see virtually no shadows out ahead. It seemed almost as if they were driving in a featureless land. The sun angle made the driving very difficult for John. Directly down sun, they could not see any of the blocks or craters. So John chose to drive to the right, then left, then right of the route. John also drove slowly in order to avoid the numerous rocks and craters covering the area. They continued on west, passing by... Spook and Buster Craters. They had thought they had seen big craters until they came upon them. They were really enormous. Buster was about 150 feet in diameter. Its entire crater bottom was covered with large rocks, which they estimated to be about 10 to 15 feet across. As they drove on, they began to get more and more confused. Everything looked the same. The navigation system was just a simple gyro compass and odometer. To get from point A to point B, they steered a certain heading on the compass and went a specified distance according to the maps. All this, of course, was dependent upon their starting in the right place. They estimated that they had landed about 200 meters from the intended landing site, but that was just an estimate. Since they were uncertain of their exact landing spot, they experienced a great deal of frustration. By the second EVA, they had figured out where they were and were able to compensate, but trying to find Plum on the first excursion was very difficult. They would find something that looked like plum, then suddenly realized it was not plum. And they would drive a little farther. At one place, they even stopped and began to get out. But it didn't seem right, and they continued the search. Man, you can't believe this territory, said John. The area was simply covered with angular rocks thrown from South Ray Crater and was rolling and hilly. Finally, they found a crater that was similar to what they were looking for. And it probably was Plum, but there was really no guarantee. Uh, uh,
1: plum,
2: Okay, we copy. You should be about 40 meters from Plum, is that right? Uh, we... We're not. We're right on the rim. If that's okay with you. That's okay. You can. You can. You see, see everything we do. Okay. But for some reason, I'm not bouncing out of this thing like I thought I Are you still in the ray material uh, there, Plum? No. Good. We don't want to be. The ray material is just about, the ray material is about 50 meters to the east of us, Tony. Outstanding.
0: Their task at Plum was to do some geological experiments, a magnetometer experiment, and collect samples on the rim of Plum Crater. Charlie jogged over to the edge to photograph a pan of the area. Then he took a look at Flag Crater, which was adjacent to Plum. Yeah, is that
2: some crater, Tony? Woo! It, it's a smooth crater, but uh, very subdued. But it's really steep, and the, uh, there's uh, some smaller craters, 10 meters or so. Tony, the sides are steep enough to cast uh, the shadow from the sun, uh, so you can estimate from what our sun angle is what the walls of that, he- that are. Okay, Tony, uh, to the north side of, uh, of uh, Spoop, right on the... Uh, I keep calling it Spoop on flag, is a uh, crater right on the inner rim, it has some blocks in it that are uh, not too big, cobble uh, size, I'd say. Does that help any, is uh, We don't have a big jet. We big jet. Mostly just two. Now, the size of this thing is pretty steep. Uh, I'm not going get, to uh, get down too far. I can't see the bottom of it. And it's getting so steep, I don't want to go any farther. That way, like good uh, idea, Charlie. Southwest flank of Plum. Uh, on the southwest flank of Plum, we have a uh, uh, a very boulder that is about a meter tall. and uh, that's the only bowler we see of any consequence here uh, in Plum. Uh, in and uh, Flag, on the southwest rim, about halfway down into the crater, we see a, a block that is sticking out that's very angular. And, uh, and it's in an area of fire albedo. It's probably a bearing block. I wouldn't call it bedrock. see I mean, nothing that looks like bedrock. Okay, how far down from the room was it? What's Halfway.
0: Flag crater was so steep that if either one of them fell in, it would have been fatal. There was no rescue from the bottom of a big crater. They had no ropes to pull the other one out, and it would have been practically impossible to climb out by oneself. The astronauts had requested to bring a tether along for this reason, and also for use as a harness like a mountain climber to allow them to venture down into a crater. But the idea made the managers too nervous, and the request was denied. The view from the rim of the crater was spectacular. To the south, Charlie could see Stone Mountain and South Ray Crater. Then to the north was the rolling horizon with the gray of the lunar surface, and above it the blackness of space. John and Charlie got the rakes, tongs, and shovel, and began to collect samples. They used specially designed tools because the suits would not bend at the waist. The shovel was for scooping soil, the rake for sifting through and collecting rocks one half inch and larger, and the tongs for picking up baseball-sized rocks. Using all their geology training, they described each rock.
2: Uh, this one is a uh, same spot is a uh, breccia with a white matrix that's glass coated on one side and uh, thin typical glass burner uh, surface uh, glass coating okay we copy that and when you're through at this site uh, you can press on around plumb if you like that's rock bag at 352 Houston okay 352 i right, take it back that's rock bag number two Okay, number two. Come on, stick her in. Let's go. Barry, you're going to fall down here with all these rocks. <laughs> no, I'll, I'll give you the shovel in just a minute when I fill up and uh, we'll swap, okay? This shovel's a great tool, I'll tell you. Back up. Oh, boy. And here
0: comes the Bobsy Twin. John had great balance and could really run well on the moon.
2: Uh, you guys look like you're having a are.
0: really By this time, their suits were really getting filthy. They were dropping bags and having to scrounge around in the soil to recover them. It was like rolling around in a coal bin. Plus, the lunar regolith was very loose and unconsolidated, and with every step, they sprayed dust all over themselves.
2: John, look, look at that footprint. Look underneath that regolith. When you kick that up, a, meter, a centimeter or so under it, it's white. Absolutely white right here. i take your old thing and do exploratory there for a while.
0: The top layer of soil was gray, but surprisingly to John and Charlie, about an inch below it was pure white, a unique feature of this part of the lunar surface. Houston directed the moonwalkers to a big boulder, and John brought out his trusty hammer. Pounding on rocks was one of John's favorite activities during training. He started banging away and was able to break off a little piece. They collected a few more samples, and then Tony announced.
2: Okay, and it's time to go back and pack up. Okay. Okay. As you come around there, there's a rock in the near field on this rim that has some white on the top of it. We'd like you to pick it up as a grab sample. This one right here? That's it. This, this one right here? That's it. You got it right there. Okay, that's a, that's a, that's a football-sized rock. It's a great scott size. Sure you want a rock that big, Houston? Yeah, let's go ahead and get it. That's a 20 pounds rock right there. Okay.
0: In vain, John tried to talk mission control out of bringing that big rock back as it turned out to weigh more than 26 earth pounds. But they really wanted it. It was the largest rock brought back from the moon by any mission. Charlie had to turn his back to the crater to retrieve the rock and he was a little concerned about falling in. He radioed, If I fall into Plum Crater getting this rock, Muleberger has had it. Charlie was referring to Bill Muleberger, their geology team leader, and Charlie knew he was calling the shots from the back room. But it was a beautiful rock. Since it was too big to go into any of their bags, Charlie just put it on the floor of the rover. They named the rock Big Muley after Bill. The next stop was Buster Crater. They had actually drove by Buster on their way to Plum. John had named this crater for his son, John, Jr., who as a youngster was nicknamed Buster Brown Now there was a small problem. Charlie's cooling water was getting low. So Houston made the decision to cut short their time at Buster Crater. Now Buster was a lot bigger than Plum. The astronauts parked the rover on a ridge near the south rim so Mission Control could monitor their activities on TV. While they were unloading, Charlie looked back to the east and about a mile away. He could see the lunar module, Orion, glistening in the sun. The orange reflective material of the descent stage stood out in sharp contrast to the dull gray of the lunar surface. At Buster, John performed another magnetics experiment and Charlie used the 500 millimeter lens to take pictures of South Ray Crater, Stone Mountain, and to make a pan of the area.
2: Okay, I'm finished with my pan and the 500. Uh, I'm going to run over to uh, to Buster and do some sampling. Over. Buster's really impressive uh, crater. You just in the wall, it's steep, and the blocks are all over it. Okay, we copy that. And Charlie sounds like he's got a good plan there. Yeah, we. Man, John. Hey, this is some sight up here. Looking down into that beauty. Uh, uh, Tony, the uh, block and uh, Buster are covered. Uh, the bottom is covered with. Uh, blocks the largest 5 meters across Uh, the sides uh, the blocks seem to be a preferred orientation northeast to uh, southwest Uh, they go all the way up the wall uh, on on those two sides and on the other sides you can only barely see them outcropping in about uh, 5% Uh, 90% of the The bottom is covered with uh, blocks that are uh, uh, 50 centimeters and larger, and uh, I get a partial pan into there. Good show. It makes it sound like a secondary. The
0: The scientists believed that Buster was a secondary crater made by a big boulder that had been blasted out of another large crater. As Charlie collected samples around that steep rim, he was very careful to watch his step so he wouldn't fall in. Now Mission Control was rushing the astronauts, so Charlie ran around grabbing rocks just as fast as he could. He resembled a kid and an Easter egg hunt who was running out of time and wanted to get as many eggs as he could. Finally, they loaded up and headed back to the landing site. John really went fast, and they got up to 10 kilometers per hour in the rover. When they hit small craters, the rover would bounce right through them, and then the back end would break loose and fishtail.
2: Yahoo! Look at that thing dig in. Boy, we just missed a batty. Are you steering all four wheels? Yep. No problem. Now, I was really going slow at first. Uh, I think it would be a problem when you're navigating under unknown terrain. Hey, we've been making about ten clicks, Tony, and uh, going uh, just super. Outstanding. But you see, going down sun or into the sun which we're not going to be doing much of anymore, It's really, you can't, you, can't, you can't plan ahead far enough to do yourself any good. But that's why I was going so slow there at first.
0: As they neared the landing site, the flight plan called for a scheduled demonstration of the rover's versatility, a test nicknamed the Grand Prix john remained the driver and charlie got out to snap a series of pictures on 16 millimeter film while john took the rover through some pre-planned maneuvers the actual course of the grand prix was up to the astronauts to determine
2: okay that flat place right in here charlie yeah that's what i was thinking so you could go out up that way and then out over that way towards the lamp. okay right, right. let me jump off. Okay, now let me see. You're supposed to drive uh, 45 degrees to the sun, okay? Yep. Okay, let me get the 16 off. I'll I'll do it from there up toward this way, okay? Wait a minute. Okay. Which way are you going to drive? From here, this way? Going over to the stone? You see where that white thing is? Yeah. I'll I'll go over there toward a rock and drive up this way. Okay, Okay. well, wait. Why don't you just drive the... Drive towards the limb. Let me move out here. and You just drive towards the limb, turn around, and then drive towards Stone. Okay. Okay? Okay. Let me get the camera. Okay, to start, I'm supposed to be about 50 meters or so from you. Okay, Charlie, and what I'll do is, uh, drive from A to B, Xenic start, max velocity readout, and, uh, do some uh, I'm not going to do much steering control around here other than to avoid regular craters. I'm going to have to do that anyway. Yeah. Okay, I'm not, ready. I'm not going to break it. to mount anything. That's all, Mark. That max acceleration? No. Man, you are really bouncing... Is he on the ground at almost 10 kilometers? Huh? He's got about two wheels on the ground. He's a big rooster tail out of all four wheels. And as he turns, he skids, the back end breaks loose just like on snow. Come on back, John. Then I'll tell you, Indy's never seen a driver like this.
0: Not counting the turn John made before coming back on the return leg, He drove about 25 seconds in each direction. His average speed was likely a bit less than 10 kilometers per hour. So the distance he drove in each direction was less than 70 meters. But that was not enough. Listening to what the guys in Houston wanted for the test, Charlie egged John on. They want
2: four minutes worth, John. That well, was a minute and five. Then you can do it twice more. Surely. Okay, turn sharp. <laughs> I have no desire to turn sharp. <laughs> okay, here's the Sharpie. Hey, that's great. Man, those things. When, it, when those wheels really dig in, Don John, John, when you turn, it's when you get the rooster tail. The uh, suspension darling? system on that thing is fantastic. That yeah. sounds good. Uh, we sound like we've probably got enough of the Grand Prix. We're willing to let you go on from here. Call out a Grand Prix. Okay. Man, that was all four wheels off the ground Air. Okay, Max, stop. Okay, I don't want to do that. Okay, excuse me. It's a, it's a no-no. Okay, uh, deck off mark. Okay, John Daxall. Okay, I have a lot of confidence in the stability of this contraption. Me too. Sounds great.
0: John didn't really get up to any great speed, maybe a little over ten kilometers per hour, because he judged the terrain too rough and rocky for much recklessness. He was driving around craters, and a couple of times he did a breakout or skid on the turn to show Charlie and the camera how it looked. It turned out driving the rover when it skidded was no problem. John never had the feeling that he was going to turn over. Some judged the pictures Charlie took of the Grand Prix as some of the best pictures Apollo 16 brought back because they were so unique. The astronauts now quickly finished up their EVA closeout procedures and Charlie returned to the limb first. When it was his turn, John had a little difficulty getting through the hatch since he had to carry the contingency sample, but Charlie coached him through it.
2: Okay, get there, the, the you really gotta arch your back, John. You got it. They come towards me a little bit. Hey, keep coming towards me. There you go. Hey, I bend over a little bit. Come board a little bit. There you go. You got it. Your two hook hooking up on, the, on your.
0: Uh, there you go. At 6:58 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, their first moonwalk ended. They were out a little over seven hours and Mission Control was concerned about getting them back inside Orion. Charlie's normal cooling water was gone and he was on reserve. This was probably due to all the energy he had expended. It had been a big workout. Back in the lunar module, the moonwalkers couldn't believe how filthy they were. John noticed the only place they didn't get dirty was their neck ring. That was because it had been protected by their helmets. All that falling down had covered everything in dust. They had some washcloths to wipe off their suits, but that just seemed to rearrange the dirt. The dust was so fine it pressed right into the suit fabric. Like previous astronauts, Charlie was surprised at the odor of the dust. It smelled like gunpowder. He could never figure out why. Another puzzle was the dust had a very greasy or oily slick feeling to it, yet the moon contains no moisture. They suspected that this dry dust was absorbing moisture from the cabin atmosphere. Now they realized how tired they really were. Also, their fingers were badly bruised. Working in spacesuits, squeezing those gloves and pressing the tips of their fingers against the end caused their digits to seem like bloody stumps. After undressing and preparing their equipment for the next day's EVA, they weighed out their rocks and soil samples. The total came to 44 pounds, not counting the big muley and some other large ones they had left in the rover. They were allowed to bring back 215 pounds, so they had plenty more collecting to do. There was time for a 30-minute briefing with the geologist and scientist in the back rooms of Mission Control. They had lots of questions about the various rocks they found. John and Charlie figured they had sampled both the Cayley Plain material and South Ray material on this first EVA. Following the briefing, Tony said,
2: "I think you did an outstanding job. The back room was elated. I went back there after the EVA and talked to them, and uh, and they were really excited. I was really pleased with it."
0: John and Charlie were glad to hear that because they were still upset over the loss of the heat flow experiment.
2: Okay, thank you. Uh, let me say that, that all our geology training I think has really paid off. Uh, our sampling has uh, really, uh, at least the procedurally, has uh, been uh, uh, real teamwork and uh, uh, we appreciate everybody's hard work on our sampling and training. Okay, and I sure think it's paying off. You guys did an outstanding job.
0: For the past three years, John and Charlie had worked with these geologists Bill Muehlberger, Lee Silver, Dale Jackson, and others. And they were now in mission control, coordinating Apollo 16's moon excursions right along with the astronauts. After eating, John and Charlie finally had the opportunity to string up their hammocks and get ready for bed. Then, surprisingly, Deke Slayton got on the comm and chatted a while.
2: Roger, well, we've got a nice casual schedule from here, seeing when as well power down and get a good eight hours of snoozing. You really feel like it in the morning.
0: Deke was clearly concerned with John and Charlie getting their rest. Charlie then told Deke he didn't think he would be able to go to sleep, but John always slept like a baby. Deke replied that the moon seemed like the best place in the world to sleep, and he wished he was there. John answered back that they wished he was there too. At last, the comms with Houston were finished, and it was time to sleep. Charlie was physically exhausted. But because he was still so wound up, he did have a tough time calming down. His mind was racing with thoughts of all the activities of their first day on the moon and their plans for tomorrow. Charlie knew he would never be able to go to sleep with his mind racing like that. So, he decided to take another sleeping pill. Within minutes, he was drifting off to sleep. Of course, John didn't have any trouble at all. Even before Charlie took his pill, John was dead to the world. Salutations from my mother-in-law's backyard. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 363 of the Space Rocket History Podcast, entitled, Apollo 16, Moonwalk 1, Part 3, The Grand Prix. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. Our next episode is scheduled to be released on May 13th. If you're looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 189 are available on the Archive Podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on most podcatchers. As usual, had a few afterthoughts on this episode. As I was researching the episode, it seems there are little bits of discrepancy between John and Charlie's account of the visit to Flag or Plum Crater. In his book, John Young puts almost all the emphasis on Flag Crater, while Charlie emphasizes Plum Crater. Now, the craters were right next to each other, so I guess it doesn't really matter that much. It just created some confusion on my part as to exactly what was going on. The Apollo 16 Surface Journal seems to confirm that Flag was the landmark crater they were looking for, and Plum was the smaller crater next to it where they set up a geology station. So, in this case, I would say John Young's account was more accurate than Charlie's. Now, I don't know if you caught this or not, or maybe I'm just imagining things, but I think John's sense of humor came through in one of those clips. When he was collecting rocks, he said that the rock he picked up went in bag 352. Then he changed it. And he said that the rock really went into bag number two. (laughs) Now, the way I interpret this, and I could be wrong is John was using a little bit of potty humor to indicate that it was a rather ordinary rock that he was putting in the bag. A number two. (laughs) I could be wrong, but go back and listen to it and see what you think. Well, what did you think about that Lunar Grand Prix? I watched the YouTube video of it, and I encourage you to do so as well. Just search for it. You'll find it quickly. It sounded and looked like it was so much fun. It's too bad the course was so rough, or John could have really opened it up. But (laughs) Maybe he could have got up to 12. I don't know. But that would have been fun to do, especially on the moon. What a great vehicle that rover was. It really enhanced those missions. Okay, for every mission, some moonwalker expresses their surprise that the rocks and soil smell like gunpowder. Do these guys not talk to each other at all? At this point, it should be common knowledge what the moon smells like. And there should be no surprise. Or are the astronauts not really surprised, but they just want to inform the reader in a more elegant fashion that the moon smells like gunpowder? I don't know, but this gunpowder thing comes up every mission. It seems like somebody would generate a memo. or do something to let everybody know, hey, it smells like gunpowder. I also wanted to mention that I could only get a partial clip of that Deke Slayton conversation with the astronauts before they went to bed, so I just summarized the remainder of it. Hope everybody remembers that Deke was grounded at this point and couldn't go on a mission. And finally, for those interested in the farm project, we are still in my mother-in-law's backyard, but we are moving on Friday or Saturday depending on weather. We can do this now because the surveyor has finally and at last moved the mobile home off the property.) <laughs> It is hard to express the feeling of relief I felt as the mobile home was removed. So, last week we quickly wired up the power and installed the appropriate sewer and water connections. So it's actually, it's ready to go right now. We could go now. And if I wasn't working on the podcast, we would probably already be there. But there is one catch The internet is not there yet, (laughs) so I've got to get an internet connection up there. So uh, they're scheduled to come out on May 5th, I think is what it is. So until May 5th, I'll be operating internet off the telephone, So and it's not very good. So we'll see how that works. And that is where we are on the Farm Project. I will update those still interested (laughs) next time. Okay, let's move on to the uh, contributions. Over the last fortnight, we had five new contributions and increases. I'd like to thank Tim L. from New Jersey who donated at the Orion level. David R. from California donated at the Orion level and earned a satellite emoji. Joe P. sent in another donation and moved to the Gemini level. Zach W. increased his pledge on Patreon to the Orion level. Dave E. from Newfoundland pledged on Patreon at the Mercury level. Our total Patreon donors are now at 253. Would you believe we lost five Patreon donors? Well, maybe that's quite easy to believe for some of you. <laughs> I don't know. Somehow we've lost five. And usually over the end of the month we'll lose some more because people's credit cards will expire and Patreon won't be able to build to bill them. So if your credit cards about to expire, I'd appreciate it if you'd check on that. Our total donors for 2021 have reached 331 and our goal is 500 by the end of the year. If you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption, please consider going to the homepage at spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Now, here's Mrs. SRH with this episode's donor giveaway.
1: Thanks, Mike. Hello, SRH friends. Our personal project has taken some positive steps forward, and that is a relief and quite exciting. Grandson is taking a liking to driving the tractor, and you know, he's quite good with the front loader. Must be those video games, huh? <laughs> Back to SRH business. The drawing, and now the winner. The winner for this episode will get the choice of a space rocket history magnet, or two stickers, or two static clings, or two holographic stickers, or the SRH archive magnet. Oh yes, not to forget, the NASA meatball sticker is also a choice. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Harold Daner. Harold Daner, if you would email us, mike at spacerockethistory.com, tell us your address, and your SRH prize preference will get this out to you. Sincere apologies if I did not pronounce your name correctly. And thank you to all 331 of you who have contributed thus far in 2021.
0: My sources for this episode were NASA, Moonwalker by Charlie Duke, Forever Young by John Young, the Apollo 16 Mission Report, the Apollo 16 Timeline, the Apollo 16 Lunar Surface Journal, the Internet Archive, Flickr, and Wikipedia. And that is all we have for this episode. I will try to have episode 364 posted by May 13th. Stay healthy, everyone, and so long for now.